We're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. But in the previous verse, um, Paul says he was not sent to baptise, he was sent to preach. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling, My message and my preaching were not with the wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Well, it's, I think, our third sermon in the 1 Corinthians series. And uh, we're doing this series, and we'll go through till Easter up to chapter 6, and then later on in the year we'll finish the rest of this great letter. And as we look at this passage this morning, I've got really one main goal, and that is to persuade you to embrace God's wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. I want you to start making your life decisions this morning based on God's wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. So let me define our terms because you don't want to talk about such a big 
thing and not define what we're talking about. So what do I mean by God's wisdom? Well, what is God's wisdom? The Bible says that God's perfect wisdom is his perfect understanding of everything. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40, very famous bit, verse 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. So God's wisdom is his understanding. Also, it's unlimited. He is truly, as the philosophers say, omniscient. He knows everything. He knows how many grains of sand there are on the beaches of the world. He knows how many stars there are in the sky. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Romans 11.33 says that God's wisdom is deep and rich. And Psalm 147 verse 5 says, God's wisdom and understanding has no limit. So it's unlimited. It's also not human wisdom. It's not the same thing. God's wisdom is not human wisdom. It's so vast that no human can ever comprehend what God can comprehend. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says God. So God's wisdom is his understanding. It's unlimited and it's not the same as human wisdom. It's also, though, available for us. God makes his wisdom available for us. If you want to be wise, there's only one source you can go to, and that's God, says the Bible. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. James, a brother of Jesus, says, If you lack wisdom, ask God, and he'll give it to you generously. So God's wisdom is his understanding. It's unlimited. It's not the same as human wisdom, but he offers it to people. Also, God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge. So he knows everything perfectly, so he makes the best choices. He remembers everything and he knows what's coming in the future. He knows what everyone is thinking. His perfect knowledge is what gives him his perfect wisdom. God's wisdom is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by a perfect means. God sees everything without guessing and it's his power to choose what is best. And this is a great comfort for those, who've, those who trust in God because when we experience suffering and we cry out to God and say, why is this happening to me? This is not fair. This was not supposed to be the way my life is, was to go and we can trust even though it's hard that while we don't understand God has a reason that we will one day find out when we are face to face with him in the new heavens and the new earth that is a comfort for Christians God who has perfect knowledge has a good and wise reason for doing things so God's wisdom is his understanding. It's, it's unlimited. It's not the same as human wisdom. It's offered to humans, though, and it's perfect knowledge that enables him to make the, the right decision. Also, God's wisdom causes us, if we receive it, to have know-how. His plans create the perfect outcome. And when people 
receive God's wisdom, we also can get involved with God's work and know how to act. So in the Bible, for example, God gave Joshua and he also gave Solomon wisdom to lead Israel. They received this wisdom from God and knew how to lead. So if you're stepping out into a new ministry and you're freaking out and you're saying, I don't know how to lead this group, I don't know how to lead these children or these adults or whatever it is you're doing, how to build this roof in Tanzania, or, you know, we've heard of a few things already, how to lead this ministry at Melbourne Uni. If you're stepping out to do that, you can ask God for wisdom and he will give you that wisdom so you know how to lead. If you're wanting to integrate your faith in your work and to, to serve God in whatever workplace you're in, you can seek God's wisdom on how to do that and he will give it to you. So God's wisdom is his understanding, it's unlimited, it's not the same as human wisdom, but it is available for humans. It's perfect, it's his perfect knowledge that makes the right decision and it gives us the know-how to serve him. But also, lastly, God's wisdom is his morality. It's about his morality and it is his morality. The Bible describes God's morality as pure, as loving, as good. Exodus 34, verse 6 famously says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. When we embrace God's wisdom, our character is shaped to be morally good and compassionate and gracious and patient and loving, and faithful, and forgiving. So God's wisdom is his understanding. It's unlimited. It's not the same as human wisdom. It is given to humans if we ask for it. Um, It's his perfect knowledge that makes the right decisions. It gives us know-how to serve him, and it's his perfect morality. And so what then is worldly wisdom? In a sense, it's the opposite of this. Instead of perfect understanding, worldly wisdom is misunderstanding or limited understanding instead of unlimited and perfect knowledge of the facts worldly wisdom is limited and imperfect knowledge of the facts instead of coming from god worldly wisdom comes from people instead of giving you know-how worldly wisdom causes mistakes instead of making actions morally pure loving and good worldly wisdom leads you to immorality So following God's wisdom with regards to money will cause you to be generous and prudent, whereas worldly wisdom will cause you to be selfish and careless. Following God's wisdom about time management will mean that you have time to rest and time to worship, whereas a worldly understanding about time management will lead you to workaholism and sleep deprivation. Following God's wisdom about friendships will mean that when you experience conflict, you will seek reconciliation in humility and love and ultimately keep your friend rather than push them away in anger and arrogance. Following God's wisdom about work means you'll be honest rather than deceitful. Following God's wisdom about sex means that you will be faithful rather than adulterous and loving rather than lustful. Following God's wisdom rather than worldly wisdom about parenting means you will prioritise cultivating your child's faith in Jesus over things like schoolwork and extracurricular activities. Wisdom is about choices 
And when you are at a fork in the road, God's wisdom will always take you the right way and worldly wisdom the wrong way. Following God's wisdom rather than worldly wisdom will mean that when you are lying on your deathbed, you won't be filled with regrets like so many people are. If only I had made a different choice in my life. And so no doubt, most of you hopefully will already be thinking to yourself, of course I will follow God's wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. Of course I will. Yes, but no. The truth is, no matter how hard we try, worldly wisdom seems all too attractive. We think we're pretty smart and we trust our own understanding. We are attracted to worldly wisdom because our hearts are sinful and, and we are prone towards worshipping idols, the idols of money, sex and power. In our passage this morning, Paul says um, that, uh, this, that his whole ministry to the church in Corinth was done in such a way so that their faith, he says, might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. So let's see how we can also have that kind of faith and choose God's wisdom and not worldly wisdom. Well, across this whole passage, Paul makes this big argument, which is that basically the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done to save humanity is God's big crazy contradiction to worldly wisdom. He starts off by looking at the cross, verse 18 to 25, and he says, the gospel is a kind of backwards wisdom which is based on the story of a crucified Messiah. What kind of stupid person would have dreamed that idea up? Answer, no one would have. Only God is so wise to be foolish. So Paul's playing around with the word foolish and wise here, you'll see he's being sort of sarcastic and sort of joking around a bit because what seems foolish to the world is actually wise to God and vice versa. You don't have to look very far to find the arguments of, of um, famous atheists who claim that the crucifixion is a foolish idea. Um, one of my... Um, uh, one of the famous Australian... Comedians and musicians, Tim Minchin, is a fa also a famous atheist. He, he once had this dialogue with a, a young Christian on email, which you can read. Um, and Tim Minchin says to him, how did God, a word I don't understand, send Jesus, a dead cult, cult leader from the Dark Ages in Palestine, to give us the opportunity to have our sins forgiven? I honestly don't know what that means. And he says a lot more worse things than that and graphic things. Um, but to, to Tim Minchin, it just seems like such a crazy concept. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, wrote in The God Delusion, I have described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled our obje objectivity. And I could go on reading you heaps and heaps and heaps of quotes from famous atheists who basically say, the cross is mad, as Dawkins says. It, it's 
You can't understand it, people say. And in some ways, you can't blame them. The cross of Jesus does seem like a completely crazy idea, a completely crazy way of saving human beings from their sins. And Paul agrees. He says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. One of the big problems the Greek, uh, Greeks of that time had with the idea of a personal God who would reach out to save his people was that they could not believe in a God who, who feels, who has emotions. They could not believe in a God who suffers. Suffers on a cross? That's, that doesn't make any sense. Our philosophers don't even allow that to be a possibility, said the Greeks. It's a contradiction in terms to have a God who suffers. They thought it was stupid. But interestingly, Paul's issue actually is not with the non-Christians in Corinth. It's with the Christians in Corinth. That's the issue that he's got. It's the Christians who were thinking wrongly. His issue was that the Corinthian Christians had felt the pressure of the perception of the people around them, the, the, the non-church world, the non-Christian world, They'd been feeling this pressure that the cross is a crazy idea and they had started to move on from that idea. They were embarrassed. Their smart non-Christian friends had mocked them for having these beliefs. So they started to change their theology to fit in. Not only that, but they'd forgotten that their Christian existence depends not on their merit, not on how smart they are, not on how talented they are, No, their Christian existence depends on God's call on their life and the fact that the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul argues here in verse 18 that while the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe, it is the power of God to those who do. But when you become a Christian, it's not as if you stop being influenced by the world around you. I can understand how the Corinthians have gone down this path. It actually takes some unlearning to, to, to see the world in this new way, to see God's wisdom. It takes a lot of reshaping. And we need to remember that worldly wisdom seems clever. Paul actually quotes a verse from Isaiah 29, verse 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. This comes from a passage in Isaiah that warns Israel against trying to outsmart God. And that's the thing. Our big mistake is that we think we're so smart and the Corinthians thought they were so smart and they, that they know better than God. We think in our progressive culture that we have progressed from the Bible Um, and that we're more enlightened than God. But in actual fact, we are not. And Paul quotes this verse because he's actually saying what Isaiah was saying, or what God was saying through Isaiah in this passage, has been fulfilled in Jesus. God has now destroyed the wisdom of the the world and the intelligence of the so-called intelligence with the logos, God's perfect wisdom, personified in Jesus Christ. The gospel is foolish because the cross seems crazy to the world, but to God it's perfect wisdom. Paul builds this argument a bit further and he says, another way the gospel is foolish, as far as the world is concerned, is because of the Christians. The Christians are foolish. 
Look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, all of you guys. And, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one uh, may boast before him the weak things of the world, to shame the strong. In other words, look, look at the recipients of the gospel. You, he says, look at you. It's so crazy. I can see why the gospel seems foolish to the world. You're nothing. You're not even famous. You're not important. No one really cares about you. You're not popular. You're not powerful. You're not good looking. You think you're important, but you're really not. So stop pretending. Paul says to the Corinthians, stop boasting. Stop boasting in the strength of the church leaders because that's what they were doing. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord Jesus. Boast in what he has done. When I was a teenager, um, a Christian, we were always excited when we heard that somebody became a Christian that was famous. There was a phase, I remember, when youth rallies would invite the footy player to do the testimony. And everyone would be really excited because there was a famous person who was a Christian. And this sort of happens a little bit in the Christian world. You know, you hear Hillsong getting excited about Justin Bieber being in the church or something like that. Part of what drives this, I think, this kind of weird obsession Christians have when they find out about celebrity Christians, is that Christians have this sense that we are dorky and insignificant and we feel the pressure from the world around us of people saying, You're, you actually are dorky and insignificant. And when famous people become Christians, it sort of makes us feel better about ourselves, that we're not in the dorky club. It makes us feel cooler and it builds up our self-esteem. But this is a trap because often famous Christians let us down. Often they give up their faith or, you know, they, they're just normal people like the rest of us. They're not perfect you know they're not jesus that we shouldn't put them on a pedestal um, and also we should not look to famous or successful christians to get our self-esteem to get our self-worth no now you can have a low self-esteem from what i'm saying here what paul's saying and think that you are just worthless and you're worth nothing but that's not what paul's trying to get at here Paul's intention is for the Corinthian Christians to realise that God loves you, but while he loves you, his love for you is not based on how cool you are, how significant you are, how important you are. He loves you because you're made in the image of God. He loves you because you're his child. He loves you because of what Jesus has done for you, to die for you. That's how far much he loves you, in fact, that he sent his son for you so you can stand before the holy god and this is the beginning of wisdom when you get that that's when you start to become wise your significance relies in what god has done for you in what jesus has done on the cross for you not on how cool you are shortly before the great reformer german christian theologian martin luther died there was a piece of paper containing um, some handwriting in his pocket and he wrote some words, a few words on the piece of paper, but one of the things he wrote was, 
This is true. We are all beggars. Luther had come to realise the holiness and the justice of God. He came to know deep in his heart that he had no righteousness whatsoever to, to declare him acceptable to God. All he had was Christ. He's a beggar in that sense, with his hands out. Yet in having Christ, he had everything. He had assurance of his salvation. He had assurance of heaven. He had peace with God. And he had a calm heart before the law of God. When you realise this, who you really are and who Jesus really is and what he has really done for you in dying on the cross to make you right with God, when you realise that, you begin to change from the inside out. You want to turn your back on worldly wisdom. You want to embrace the wisdom and the power of God. This is why Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The crazy and foolish gospel of God is that the Son of God died on a foolish and shameful Roman cross to pay for the sins of foolish nobodies like you. No Christian has a reason to be arrogant or boast. We are all beggars. Well, the last thing that Paul says about how foolish the gospel is, is he talks about his own preaching. The message of the cross is foolish, Christians are foolish, and as far as the world is concerned, his preaching is foolish. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And he's already made this point earlier in chapter 1, verse 17. His ministry is humble. It's not showy. It's not flashy. It's not manipulative. They should realise by now that anything that's happened that's significant is a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. While we want to be culturally relevant as a church, we have to be careful not to try and be cool. Christianity is not cool. And the sooner we realise that, the better. So we're talking about how to embrace God's wisdom and not worldly wisdom. And there's some application. And as I've already said, it's very hard because even when you're a church-going Christian, worldly wisdom is vying for your heart. And because you sometimes feel foolish as a Christian, because the world tells you you're a fool, it can be easy to try and feel less foolish by pursuing worldly wisdom. But here's a few practical things you can do. First of all, you can take the Bible seriously. People want to know what God's wisdom is for their life. Well, it's in the Bible already. You can read it and you can take, take it seriously and you can meditate on it. You can open it up in your community groups. Don't make your community group a social club, but make it you know, a, a club where you read the Bible together. Maybe there's not a lot of time in the meeting with, with, if you've got kids running around, but maybe you can meet one-on-one with somebody from the group. Um, that way you will encounter God's wisdom on every page. Another thing you can do is you can pray for godly wisdom and God promises to give it to you. James 1.5, I've already quoted, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let them ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. 
Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And the third thing you can do to embrace God's wisdom is to befriend and talk to wiser Christians than yourself. And there are plenty of those around. Even if you're in your 50s, 60s or 70s, there are other Christians you can seek wisdom from in this church. And this requires humility. It requires you to realise who you really are. You may be smart. You may have got good marks at uni. You may be high up in your workplace. You may be the boss um, in a highly paid job. But before God, you only are who you are because of what God has done for you. Whether you make these efforts to read the Bible or to, you know, pray for godly wisdom or to seek out the wisdom of other people, none of this will come at much unless you are captivated by the foolish gospel. Unless you're captivated by Jesus and what he's done for you. If you're just a cultural Christian who comes to church every so often just to tick a box because you should then you'll probably never embrace God's wisdom. But if you are transfixed by the majesty of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, the foolish gospel of the cross, then you'll find God's wisdom because the cross is the perfect image of God's wisdom. When you stand at the foot of the cross, you'll find that you are filled with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And by fear, I don't mean that you'll be frightened like you've watched a horror movie. When the wisdom book of Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about being in awe, being in awe of God. It means being blown over by his majesty and brilliance. When you realise that the cross, which the world calls bizarre and vicious, is in actual fact God's wonderful display of love for you, then you will fear the Lord and start to become truly wise. You will tremble before the Holy God as you understand deeply who you really are. You will experience a new humility and a new significance. You will want to obey God and embrace his wisdom because of what he's done for you. And when you make a mistake and do something foolish, you won't be completely crushed because you will remember that you're just a beggar who can only be called righteous before God because Jesus has given you his righteousness. The gospel really is God's crazy contradiction to worldly wisdom. So I I call you to embrace God's wisdom. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much uh, that you do offer us your wisdom and that when we pray for it, you promise to give it to us. We pray that we can be people who are wise. We can be a wise church and not foolish. Um, And as we feel the pressure to embrace worldly wisdom, we pray that we can resist and we can do so um, transfixed by the beauty of the cross. Amen.